rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, as was mentioned, we're in the middle of a three-week series here on the topic of anxiety. And last week, Pastor Jonathan spoke on Elijah the prophet. This morning, we're going to be dealing with another Old Testament character, uh, the man by the name of Job. And so uh, we're looking forward to that. You can take your Bibles, if you would, and we're going to be looking at Job chapter 3. Uh, Job chapter 3. At the end of the message uh, this morning, we'd like to conclude around the Lord's table together in communion. And uh, also our ushers will be at the door when you leave this morning and uh, collecting an, uh, an offering for Helping Hand Fund, which our deacons take these funds and distribute them uh, to those who are at need in our church and also in our community. So wanted to mention that now in case I forgot later. But as you're turning to the book of Job and as we think about the topic of anxiety this morning, we're reminded of the command that Jesus repeated the most. Some of you might be familiar with the command that Jesus repeated the most. Two simple words. The words, fear not. Fear not. The reason Jesus repeated this so often has to do with our susceptibility to being afraid. He knew our weakness here. Our lives are full of fear, aren't they? It's part of our daily lives. It's either quiet in the background, or it's loud and dominating in the foreground of our lives. It's the reality that we live in. And so Jesus lovingly encouraged us with these words. He said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. And then later he said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? Being anxious does nothing to solve our problems. And in many ways, it makes it worse. And uh, last week, Pastor Jonathan mentioned just how pervasive anxiety and fear is in our society, our culture today. And we saw some of those statistics. We are anxious. We fret and we fear and we agonize and we question 
in life. And uh, maybe the thing that should puzzle us the most is the statement that we, we put at the top of your notes on your bulletin. Because by all accounts, we should have less anxiety. Because outwardly, life has never been better. Inwardly, it's never been worse. In a recent article that I was reading, the author says this, and it's put on the screen for you. He said, It is surely odd that there is apparently more anxiety today than, say, 50 to 100 years ago. We enjoy considerable material comforts today, not least of which is the most technologically advanced healthcare to which any generation has ever had access. The author says, Unlike my father, my earliest memories do not involve running to the bomb shelter to avoid being killed. Life is outwardly, at least, much better. Yet more college students today use counseling services than ever before. The news sites frequently carry tragic stories of teenage suicides. And everywhere, the anger and outrage that characterizes online life in the public square points to an era ill at ease with itself. And so this morning, I think that we can say as a whole that we really do not know how to care for the problems that plague our souls. Because largely we've been told to deal with our problems with little to no consideration of the God who created us. And when God is not a part of the equation in dealing with our inward problems, the solutions that we come up with are oftentimes inaccurate, unhelpful, and in many ways they can be destructive to those of us who are people who are created in God's image as we think about this this morning. So while everything might be getting better on the outside, we don't really understand the nature of our souls on the inside. And so when it comes to things like anxiety and worry, we kind of treat it like that, that hot potato that we just want to get rid of so it doesn't burn us and destroy us. And so we've been told things, we've been told things like this, that most of what we worry about never happens. Maybe you've been told that before, and I ran across this graphic not long ago. And uh, it talks about the things that we worry about. There's the things that can happen. There's the things we worry about. And then there's the things that actually happen to us. And so as we think about this, we've been told, well, don't worry so much because most of what you worry about won't happen. But there's a problem with this. When you really start to think about it. Because bad Things still happen. In fact, they happen to us almost every day. We are faced with bad things that happen to us. And sometimes the things that we worry about the most seem to happen to us the most. In fact, in our passage that we're going to be looking at today, one of the things that Job says here is, 
the thing that I feared the most has come upon me. And because bad things happen, this naturally produces an additional source of anxiety for us in our lives. And so uh, in your notes there, we put that there are two additional, there are two sources for anxiety. Anxiety about the future and anxiety about the past. Anxiety about the future is called worry. The biblical term for anxiety from our past is called suffering. It's called suffering. And uh, that's where we come to the story of Job. Job tells us in extensive details about the anxiety of suffering in our lives when we experience something in our past and it causes pain, emotional, mental, physical. And so Job steps up on the scene and he is like this giant to us and how we are to understand and deal with the anxiety that comes from suffering. And before we get to chapter 3, listen to the very first verse of this book. We're introduced to this man. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And we're told about his wealth. He was probably the wealthiest man of his day. We think that he lived sometime during the time of Abraham, maybe even before Abraham. And according to what the description of his wealth is, he had even more wealth than Abraham did. So he's probably the wealthiest man of his day. And he's also described as the godliest man of his day. In fact, God says this himself about him. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. But then if we were to start reading in chapter 3, it doesn't take us long to realize that something has happened in this man's life. Because the very first verse of chapter 3 says this, Job opened his mouth, and cursed the day of his birth. And what we have here is a picture of a man who is suffering. Job is in extreme agony, and there's no easy way to describe the depth of his agony. He's extremely sorrowful. He's dealing with depression. He's lonely. He's in physical pain. He's frustrated. He's experiencing intense grief. He's completely confused. Someone has said this. Think of the worst depression that you could have ever experienced and multiply that by the sorrow of losing everything and everyone you've ever loved. And then multiply that by the dread that you would feel if you thought God himself had turned the complete weight of his wrath against you. And that is where we find Job. What happened to Job? We find out in chapters 1 and 2, as we read that, that Satan had allowed, Satan was allowed to release wave after wave of personal attack against him. And so in a single day, Job lost his flocks, his herdsmen, 
and some sort of volcanic eruption. And then we're told that a roaming gang of Chaldeans stole his camels. I don't know if those gangs still roam today, but if they do, be careful. They might steal your camels. And then we're told after that that uh, someone came up to him and told him after his property was taken from him, the devastating news that the house where his sons and daughters were, that a whirlwind had come through, destroyed the house, and taken all of his sons and all of his daughters. The children that he loved were dead. And after all these things, Job responded with these amazing words. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says at the end of chapter 1, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That was a bad day, wasn't it? We've all had bad days before. This was Job's worst day. But it was just starting for him because the next wave of Satan's attacks again took Job's health. And it says that Satan struck Job with sores from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. And so Job's day was, bad, bad days were starting to pile up and the word of his misfortune was starting to spread. And so his friends heard about this and they, they started to come by to try to offer comfort and counsel to to Job, and it says when they reached him, they couldn't even recognize him. His grief was so bad, his body so stricken by the sores, it completely altered his appearance. He was just a bag of skin and bones. And so at the end of chapter two, it says they sat down with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word because they could see that his suffering was so bad. And then at the end of verse uh, chapter 2, it talks about Job finally broke that silence and he expresses the suffering and the pain that he's going through. And I'd like to read, if I could, this morning, all of chapter 3 so we can enter into and really understand here what Job is thinking and what he's experiencing Job chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. And let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the darkness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees 
receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was the was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor... Am I quiet? I have no rest, but trouble comes. Well, this this might be the darkest chapter in all of the Bible. There are a few that come close, but this might be the darkest. This might be the lowest. I don't know some of the phrases that stick out to you from this chapter, but some of the phrases that I noticed. Let the day perish on which I was born. Most of us celebrate birthdays, but on this day, no, not Job. Why did I not die at birth, he says. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And then he says, my groanings are poured out like water. And so I'm reading this and I'm starting to wonder, what is it that's going on here with Job? Is he starting to lose it? Has has Job become one of those, those fallen icons that we so often hear about? We hear about this pastor and that pastor and this evangelist and this church member and this friend's this friend that that takes their fall, and so we wonder, is this what's happening with Job? And I can name people in my past, friends that I grew up with, that I went to church with, that I even went to Bible school with, and they no longer have a belief in God, or they've invented a different version of God, different than the God of the Bible. Some of them don't believe at all, and we have to ask ourselves, is this what is happening to Job? Is chapter 3, where this this man of of rock-solid character that the pressure is starting to mount and he's starting to crack. Because we all have our breaking point at some time, don't we? So as that's what's happening here to Job in this passage, and there's something very important that we need to understand here, because Job is not losing his faith. You need to understand, Job is being honest. He's being honest, and in the story of Job, we have this model and how to handle the anxiety that comes with suffering. You see, Job is just as holy in chapter 3 as he is in chapter 1. He's just as righteous in the valley as he is on the mountaintop. 
And so what's going on here is we see here that Job is being honest in his suffering. We want to look at four areas this morning that Job models for us how to handle suffering. And we see here every word that Job speaks, he knows exactly what he's saying. He's being honest. He's not just trying to get something off his chest. He's not just venting to make himself feel better. Job meant these words. And so our first reaction might be to kind of step back from this chapter and say, well, this is not a, how a follower of God usually responds. We might think that these are dark words and they're usually not spoken by a person of faith but we have to realize here that Job is not recoiling here from his words. And he's not regretting these words the minute they come from his mouth. He's embracing these words. And God is embracing these words by very nature of the fact that God included them here in Scripture where we can all read them here this morning. So why is it that we often try to offer counsel to someone who's suffering and we always want to say it's going to be okay you don't have to worry about this it's going to be okay but if we're going to be honest sometimes it's not going to be okay sometimes the sickness is not going to get better and sometimes there is no sleep in the middle of the night, and sometimes you can't put a happy face on an unhappy situation. Sometimes we despair. Sometimes we get depressed in life. And at times, that's okay because everything is not okay. God does not rush in to condemn Job for thinking these things. Because sometimes there's not a silver lining. Sometimes there is no positive spin. And so the question we have to ask is, in those times, does God still have something to say to me? And can I suggest this morning that sometimes in your honesty, God has the most to say to you. There are times when it does no good to pretend that everything is okay when everything is not okay. And so in all this, a question we might ask is, was Job perfect in the way he responded here? And he probably wasn't perfect. None of us are perfect when faced with suffering. And when we're in situations where it is impossible to be perfect, there's one thing that you can be, and that is honest. Johnny Erickson Tata was a woman who many of us know, and she was in a diving accident at the age of 19. As a result of that accident, she became a quadriple quadriplegic, could not use her hands like she used to, and had to get around in a wheelchair and she had some dark days following her accident. And she had questions. This is what she said about those times. For some odd reason, however, 
it comforted me to realize that God did not condemn me for plying him with questions. I didn't have to worry about insulting God for my outbursts in times of fear and stress and pain and despair. It wasn't going to shock him. You know what? It's okay to be honest with God. You're not going to shock God with your honesty. And so Job here, as an example to us, was honest in his suffering. But we can also learn from Job because, secondly, Job was holy in his suffering. Job was holy in his suffering. And, you know, we know that we can experience suffering for many different reasons. You know, people experience suffering for the sake of righteousness, and it's called persecution. People suffer because of our sin and our poor choices. We can suffer because of God's discipline in our life for disobeying him. Uh, people suffer in trials that come our way. And I can't assume my suffering is a result of my sin. And I can't assume that my suffering isn't a result of my sin. But whatever the case may be for my suffering, there's one thing that can be my concern, and that is that in the middle of my suffering, I can be holy. I can do the right thing. I can strive to maintain my integrity. And that's what Job was doing here. Job provides us this example, and Something quite remarkable happens in the middle of chapter 2. Job's health was taken away from him. And uh, he's got these sores covering his body. The only way that he could find relief is to take a piece of broken pottery. And take that pottery and scrape and scrape and scrape his sores. And that's when his wife came up to him. And she began to mock him. She said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? She said, curse God and die. But Job couldn't do that. For Job, that was, that was a line that he was not willing to cross. And he answered his wife. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job was not going to let his mind or his mouth go there to blaspheme the integrity of God. When you are in the middle of the anxiety of suffering, let me tell you, what you think about God is so very important. When you're in the middle of your suffering, what you believe about God is everything. It's everything. C.S. Lewis was a well-known author and a professor, and he was a Christian. For most of his life, he remained unmarried. But in his late 50s, he met a woman. He fell in love with her, and the two of them were married. 
And a few years after they were married, she developed cancer, and he tragically lost her. And after she died and he went into this grieving process, he began to write down his thoughts on losing his wife, and it was compiled into a book that was entitled A Grief Observed. And in that book, he said this, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I have nothing that I haven't bargained for. Of course, it's different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not in imagination. Not that I am in danger in ceasing to believe in God. And then he says this. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. He knew that in the middle of your suffering, what you believe about God is everything. Is God still good? Can you still trust God in the middle of the suffering? And Job learned something vitally important here about God. God is much more interested in my holiness than he is in my happiness. And it's not that he's not concerned about my happiness. It's not that he doesn't love me. He went to the extreme to display his love to me. But he's more concerned about my holiness than he is my happiness. God was willing to let this circumstance come into Job's life that would rob him of his happiness for a time so it could get Job to look at the holiness in his life and he could be tested and refined and this could be put on display. There was something here that could be re revealed to Job about himself in the middle of his suffering. Later on in the book, A Grief Observed, it says this, God had not been trying an experiment on my faith or my love in order to find out their quality. He already, he knows it already. It's I who didn't. You don't really understand what's on the inside until you suffer. You don't really understand what's on the inside until you suffer. It's like we are a giant tube of toothpaste. And when you get squeezed, what is on the inside comes out. That's what suffering does. What is the quality of my faith? What is the quality of my love for God? Job was learning the quality of his faith. You know what Job was willing to say? Though he slay me, it says, still I will trust him. That's what Job was willing to say. Though he slay me, still will I trust him. He might question his circumstance, but he will never question God and God's integrity. And so Job was honest in his suffering. He was holy. But then there's this other reality that, that Job was faced with here. Um, he faced number three. Job was hidden from God's plan in his suffering. 
He was hidden from God's plan. I don't know if you've ever had plans get ruined. I think we all have, right? We've all had our plans get ruined. Things that we have dreams about and ways that we think that life should go. And suddenly the wrecking ball of life comes down and crashes into our lives. And then we're just left to kind of pick up the pieces. And you might be here this morning and you're thinking, man, you don't know what I've been through. And I don't know what you've been through. And quite frankly, you don't know what I've been through. But I do know that when my plans get wrecked, I want to know, what's the plan now, God? I want to know what the plan is. And if I don't know the plan, things get really hard really fast for me if I don't know the plan. If you've ever been on an airplane before, you know that there's this routine that goes into getting on an airplane. And there's basically two different kinds of people. As the instructions are being given by the flight attendant, there's the first-time flyer, and then there's the professional flyer. And when they're going through the emergency plans, the first-time flyer is completely tuned in to everything that's going on. And so when they say that your seat can be used as a flotation device, they're touching the seat going, oh good, I'm so glad my, my seat can be used as a flotation device in case of an emergency. And they're reading through that pamphlet over and over again, in case there's an emergency, I want to be ready. And then there's the professional flyer. What are they doing during the instructions? They're wrapped up in a blanket. They've got their headphones on. They're taking a nap. They know the plan in an emergency. And you know what? When you know the plan, you can relax, right? You know the plan. You can relax. And sometimes in life, we know God's plan. Sometimes we don't. And in fact, most of the time, we don't know God's plan. And uh, Job was in the middle of an emergency, and he didn't know the plan. It was hidden from him. You see, God and Satan were in the middle of this discussion, and you can read about that in chapters 1 and 2, and God was allowing Job's faith to be put to the test and put on display. And yet Job really didn't know that. God always has a plan. We don't always know the plan. But God always knows, always has a plan. In fact, it's called God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is the complete rule of God in our universe. In your notes, I ran across this definition of God's sovereignty. And it says, It is the freedom of God to act in ways and allow things that supersede our ability to understand or our right to know why they are happening. And things become difficult and problems arise when we think that we have a right to know the details of God's plan, right? And what's God's answer to that? He says... I am God, and you are not. I am God, and you are not. 
God's ways are higher than our, our ways. And if God were to tell us the plan, guess what? We wouldn't understand it anyway. And so there is something we can know about God's plan. Like Job, at the very least we know this. God has a plan. It's a plan for his glory. And it's a plan for our good. God has a plan. It's for his glory and it's for our good. It might not feel good all the time, but that's different than it being for our good. And there's a world of difference between those two. And so Job and God, they get in this dialogue actually at the end of the book and it's actually, it's actually more of God does, more, mostly God does all the talking. And... Um, Job asks his questions throughout this book. And, and then God speaks in chapter 38. And seems here a little harsh what he's saying. He says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job didn't know the plan. Job didn't know the plan. And God is telling Job, In all your questions... You don't understand what you're talking about. Four chapters of God telling Job, you have no idea what my plan is. You don't understand. How many times have I wanted God to tell me the plan? How many times have I wanted God to tell me the plan? Far too many times, right? I wouldn't understand the plan. And Job responds, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer? I lay my hand on my mouth. He knew there was nothing to say. God knew the plan. Job knew he had no response. And that leads us this morning to our, our fourth and our final area that Job modeled for us. You see, Job is not only honest in his suffering, he's not only holy, and he's not only striving to understand God's plan, but he's also hopeful in his suffering. You know, I think we realize Job went through a lot. There's a lot that's said throughout this entire book that's said by Job and his friends and his wife. And at the end, God has his final say. And eventually, God restored all of Job's wealth and gave him additional sons and daughters. But there was a point where Job was, was at his lowest, but he was also at the time where he had the most hope. His friends and his wife were, were giving up at, on him, and so he was dealing with the pain of, of this rejection in his life. And uh, so... There is a point where he becomes most hopeful. And this is the part I love about Job because when Job is most hopeful is the time when he's talking about Jesus Christ. Job 19, 25 and 26. It says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh... I shall see God. When Job is most hopeful, he's talking here about Jesus Christ, the coming Redeemer. He says, 
This Redeemer most certainly lives. He will stand victorious on the earth someday. After Job has died, after my skin has been destroyed, he speaks of resurrection, his own resurrection, where in his flesh he will see God. The earliest reference in the timeline of the Bible to the resurrection of believers. And this is what Job is speaking of, the great promise which ultimately finds its source and its power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the great hope of all hopes that Job was experiencing. No matter what happens to my body, there is coming a day when I will see God. Job believed Job had faith. And you might sit here this morning and you might wonder, how will I have that faith for my time of testing, for my time of suffering? And this is the important thing to realize as we conclude this morning. You see, faith is that gift from God that he gives to each person who follows him. God gives the faith that takes his child through each valley. You might struggle, but you won't fall. Because God has given you faith. The scripture says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We don't fear evil, not because it doesn't exist. We don't fear evil because God is with us. It says, For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's the story of Job. The man who endured great suffering. He was honest. He was holy. He was hopeful. And he came to understand God's plan. Would you bow with me this morning? This morning as we prepare our hearts uh, for communion around the Lord's table, we remember that there was another man who suffered. It was the man, Jesus Christ. And we know that, that he endured even greater suffering than Job did because his suffering was the burden of all the sins of the entire world. And in these next as these next few moments, we want to remember the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross uh, for our sins. If we think again to what the words of the prophet Isaiah said, it says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed, they esteemed him not. But surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This morning you might be here for the first time, or maybe you've, you're here for the first time for communion, and we want to let you know we have open communion here. And we leave it up to you to assess whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you and welcome you to join us. The uh, cup and the bread will be passed to you in your seat. Uh, they symbolize the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We're told in the New Testament, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we never want to forget his suffering for us. We never want to get that we are forever forgiven. And though we still have sin in our lives, we have the hope of heaven, and we know that we need to confess our sins directly to God himself. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this morning in communion, we're to remember his death. The work of Christ on the cross was the most important work that he came to do. So this is the time this morning to examine our hearts before the Lord. As the servers come with the bread this morning, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the body of Jesus Christ that was given so willingly and so freely for each one of us that was broken so severely, that suffered so deeply, and that redeemed so clearly in our lives. For that we thank you in your son's name.
recently ran across the lyrics to this song. Listen to these words. It says, When love came down to earth and made his home with men, the hopeless found a hope and the sinner found a friend. When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet. So come lay your heavy load down at the master's feet. Your shame will be removed and your joy will be complete.